Welcome to Find Your Inner Sage, a show making self-care easy so you can live the life you want. I'm your host, Fiona Lynch, a clinical psychologist, bringing you evidence-based information and tips that work. Join me and our inspiring guests as we empower you to look after your whole well-being so you can live with joy and meaning. today's episode where I am joined again by the wonderful Georgia Prisco, clinical naturopath from Intuitive Cycles. Today Georgia and I are going to be chatting about what stress is and what happens in our body and our hormones when we are stressed and how we can engage our parasympathetic nervous system better to calm our body down again so that we can eventually calm our mind. Georgia will be helping us understand what the impact of chronic stress can be on the body and on our health. And stay with us till the end where we share what our top strategies are for managing our own stress in our lives. Before we get stuck into today's episode, I want to let you know of an exciting workshop I've got coming up for those of you in Victoria, Australia. In September, I will be co-hosting a workshop on prioritizing your self-care with the wonderful Anna Rimmer from Yoga Farm 3217. While I'll host a workshop on how to prioritize self-care, what gets in the way, bringing in psychology principles to help you get the energy that you need and enjoy that life balance that you are looking for. Following this, Anna will deliver us a full hour of the wonderful yin yoga designed to help us relax and find our calm. As well as this beautiful afternoon of prioritizing self-care and yoga, you'll also be given a self-care workbook so that you walk away with your own individual self-care plan and you'll get access to the online course once it's available for the lifetime of that course. What I love about Anna's Yoga Farm is that the space is so small and intimate for only 10 people. So if you're interested in this one, please get in quickly as we are expecting spaces to sell out and you can find tickets on my website. So Georgia, we loved having Jess Rowe on. We talked all things mindfulness and looking after ourselves and yoga. And we thought today it would be good for us to talk a little bit more about what stress is because it's such an important part um, of all of our lives and managing it is really how we get to gain more energy and improve our mood and it allows us to really focus on the things that are most important to us when we're managing stress better. So it's just you and I today and we're going to hopefully have some useful conversations for people. Let's start by understanding that stress is actually something that's really helpful for us. We often talk about stress in really negative ways and we might think of it as something that we don't want, but let's, I guess, sort of bust that myth straight away. Stress is really useful for us and really helpful for us. It particularly helps us perform. So we know that without any stress, performance uh, in anything really that we're doing isn't very good. This is called the Yerkes-Dodson law and it's been around from psychologists since 1908. It's really well established. So when we have no stress at all, if you think of a performance such as an athlete running a race or a student sitting an exam, if they have no stress or no arousal, they can't be bothered, they're not interested, they're a bit lethargic, they're not really switched on and focusing. And so their performance in that running race or in that exam is actually not really good at all without any stress. We see that then as stress starts to increase, performance also starts to get better. 
So when we hit this optimal stress zone where we have a bit more stress, we're then excited, we're attentive, focused, we're switched on, we put a lot of effort in. So that runner running the race or the student sitting the exam is really switched on and ready to go and they're actually going to perform a lot better. And this is the case even if we're not an athlete or a student across lots of performance tasks or tasks in general that we do across our lives. But that is up until a point and then we hit a point where stress becomes too high that it starts to inhibit our performance or our performance gets worse. And that's when stress becomes so high or arousal becomes so high that we become highly anxious, we become exhausted, we can't focus or concentrate um, and if it continues over a long time we might hit burnout. So that's where stress starts to impede our performance. So we know that stress is really important and really helpful and we don't want to get rid of it altogether, but we want to be able to use it in the times where we need it, when we need to perform, and we also want to be able to regulate it so that it comes back down again at other times. What's really quite important within that as well is that some people think when our stress starts to get really high, we hit this zone of delusion where we think that if we just keep performing and just keep stress really high, we're going to continue to perform really well. And that's actually not the case. Performance starts to dip with higher stress. But in those moments, we can't really see that. So that's when people might notice they just go, go, go and continue with the task because they're performing really well. They think if they just keep going, their performance will stay high, but it's not the case. Performance is about to dip because your stress has become too high. Um, so it's really useful, I think, for us to kind of remember that stress is helpful, but we also don't want it to be too high because that's where it becomes unhelpful. Mm, I think that's a great place to start um, to understand how it can be helpful because, yeah, even myself, I kind of don't think about that often because I often see the negative effects of stress in my own life and also um, with my clients as well. So I think it's good to think about yeah, stress is something that can be positive, but then, yeah, until it tips over the edge. I love that idea of zone of delusion. Mm. <laughs> I think that's a good um, analogy to think about in your own life too of, um, yeah, when am I pushing? When is it a push when it shouldn't be, um, yeah, something that kind of you're forcing, I guess. It's a forcing yeah. effect thing, isn't it? Um. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what stress is because I think as well we don't really understand what is going on physiologically. Um, we've all probably heard, or maybe I'm assuming that, of the term fight or flight, which is this biological, very um, ancient, you know, thing that's been a part of our body that is when we, you know, are faced with perceived danger, our body switches on this acute stress response. And it's really to give you that energy, sharpen your focus and help you deal with whatever danger you have um, perceived there to be. And the more intense or the more urgent the situation, the bigger that stress response will be. So to kind of break it down, um, so there's going to be a few big words, but we'll work through it. Um, so the there is something called the amygdala, which we often think of um, as a fear, our fear center, but it's really our emotional processing center. So that center in our brain then sends a signal to our hypothalamus, which is another big command center of the body. Um, I often talk about the hypothalamus because it affects the adrenals, 
Um, it affects your reproductive system. It definitely affects your thyroid. So there are a lot of parts of the body that is that are affected by the hypothalamus. So there's sort of these cascades of um, signals and responses then through the body, which is all working with the autonomic nervous system. And that's the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, which those terms are often thrown around as well. So we like to think of the sympathetic as the accelerator. So that's really pushing you to do more, have more energy, get things done, you know, be more active. And the parasympathetic nervous system is the break that really slows everything down, helps you rest and digest, which is the term. So, you know, all of the things that are necessary for survival, but in an urgent situation are necessarily um, top priority. So, like I said, the amygdala, then the hypothalamus, and then the hypothalamus sends the signals to the adrenals, which release adrenaline. So that is our short-term chemical that is released that then leads to body changes. So that's things like increased heart rate so that we can get more blood to our muscles so we can run away and more blood to our vital organs like our heart and our lungs. So your pulse will quicken, your breathing rate quickens because we want to get more oxygen to the brain as well. And our blood pressure goes up too. So we might experience chest tightness and things like that too. Our muscles are tense. Uh, we get a bit sweaty, clammy palms, and maybe a little bit of a nauseous or sort of sick feeling in our tummy. And they're kind of the big, you know, that acute stress response, that sweaty, quick breathing and heart rate. And these things happen so quickly, often before we even realize that there's danger or stress. You know, we might imagine, you know, if you're you see someone about to walk across the road and you kind of throw your arm out before you even process it in your brain. That's, you know, your body has such a quick response that you can do things um, before you even compute it in your brain. Absolutely. And within that, I think, you know, those emotion processing centers that are responsible for this stress response, which is also really similar to anxiety response. So some people might be familiar with that from an anxiety response. But those emotion processing centers, they really also process a lot of our visual stimuli. Mm -hmm. And so we don't trigger our stress response from our thoughts. This response gets triggered automatically from the visual stimuli we're Mm -hmm. getting around us often as well. Yes, exactly. And so we will touch more on what the causes of stress are later. But, you know, this used to be this acute stress response used to be caused by a life threatening um, situation, you know the the old um tiger situation online or whatever you need to see um but now we have so many triggers of acute stress you know work relationships even things like social media and things like that too can be really stressful and triggering for people so we'll chat more about that a little bit more but fee what happens when this acute response becomes chronic and happens and is maintained Yeah, and so obviously we need that acute response when there is a stress there. So we can see how that's helpful if there is a threat like a tiger. So what's supposed to happen within that is after that initial adrenaline response, there are specific hormones released from the hypothalamus, that command center in your brain, that keep the stress response going while the danger is there, and they prompt the release of cortisol. So most people are really familiar with cortisol and think it's sort of the only stress hormone in your body. It's not. There's this whole network of responses going on even before cortisol 
kind of is hitting the system. And that cortisol release and the hypothalamus, we kind of think of that as keeping the gas pedal pressed down. So it keeps that stress response going as long as that stressor or the thing that's made you stress is thought to be there. What's supposed to happen after that is that then the stressor reduces and your your high levels of cortisol feed back to your hypothalamus and say, we now have enough cortisol, we can stop this stress response going. There's enough here, the stressor has passed, we can reduce this stress response. And that's when your parasympathetic nervous system kicks in. And as Georgia mentioned, that's your, your rest and digest, or I just like to call it the calming part of your nervous system. And that's the brakes hitting this system, dampening down all these responses again. So it reduces your heart rate, it reduces your blood pressure, it slows your breathing down, it stimulates digestion again through saliva stimulation and increasing your your bowel movements and things like that. It improves your concentration again uh, and your logical thinking kind of comes back when your parasympathetic nervous system kicks in. So this is a natural response. You know, we used to not have to do a lot to reduce our stress. It used to just be naturally that when cortisol got high enough and the stress all left, that our parasympathetic nervous system breaks kind of kicked kicked in. What can happen nowadays, though, is with chronic stress, is the brain and the hypothalamus gets used to a chronic level of cortisol in the body. And so where it used to be really sensitive and a little bit of cortisol would tell the, the brain that's enough, we can reduce the stress response again, I've got enough cortisol in the body, the brain's starting to get used to us having cortisol constantly in the body when we experience chronic stress. And so that isn't enough anymore for us to kick back into the parasympathetic nervous system or to calm the brain down or the body down again. So when there's that chronic stress, there's the higher levels of cortisol all the time. And the brain sort of just doesn't listen when cortisol tells it to stop releasing all these stress hormones. And that's where that stress can continue instead of being that acute response that we want and it can be more ongoing. Yeah, and I actually, um, I see or I do a lot of testing with cortisol with clients too. And we often test in the morning just to see, you you know, your baseline cortisol in the morning should be high because that's kind of what gets you out of bed and gets you moving the day. But I often see that super high and that means that that chronic level, it hasn't dropped down like it should and it should climb back up. It's sort of, yeah, at a super high level even to start with. And the other thing that can happen is that there's low cortisol in the morning and high cortisol at nighttime, which again is that opposite. So cortisol can do all kinds of things in the body, can't it, to make you feel not be able to sleep well or um, to have that chronic level of stress too. Yeah, for sure. And tell us a bit more about those. What are the signs of stress that people might notice? So not being able to sleep well is one of them. What else might people notice when they're stressed? Yeah, so um, you can feel so many different things. And I think the main thing that I see clinically too is this term of um, I just don't feel right or I feel inflamed or, you know, these strange symptoms that can creep up as well um, that people just don't know where they're coming from. But when stress is resolved or stress is sort of managed they just fall away but um, a term that I often use and have seen a lot within myself too is this wired but tired so you're you're wired because you're sort of thinking and you're anxious about things and you're constantly um, your brain is going but you're just exhausted mm-hmm. um, so you know you can go from that to then just consistent 
no like low mood low motivation and tired too so there's two spectrums I think of that as well and you can just feel really flat and uninterested in socializing and I'm interested in work life exercise all of those things a big one is sometimes you know we think of insomnia as a big one you know you can't sleep but then another thing that we often see is heavy sleeping but unrefreshed waking so people say I'm getting all this sleep but I just cannot feel energized Um, and that's a classic one where you're not actually getting deep restorative sleep the other ones that you know I see clinically also that just come in those sinister little ones that come in um, are things like headaches you know from too much tension in your muscles irritability digestive issues IBS is a classic one immune low immunity so constant consistent illness and then inability to recover from those so you kind of you know bugs can get you and then you're just going up and down and you barely recover between each illness reproductive health because I work um, with a lot of women's health issues so you know it could be fertility issues but just basic you know PMS and and sex hormone imbalances that cause um, mental health changes as well massive in menopause too stress stress in that menopause transition can cause an exacerbation of all the menopausal symptoms I see that a lot Another one is, yeah, that brain fog. You mentioned that, that lack of clarity and ability to focus um, and weight too. So the metabolic issues are massive. There's a lot of research around stress and metabolic um, issues. So, you know, it can lead to high blood pressure and clogging of the arteries as well as that increase in addiction and overeating tendencies, um, which then lead to, can lead to obesity. And then obviously the classic anxiety and depression. So all of these things, you know, there's there's a wide variety, isn't there? But they can all be stemming from chronic stress. Um, but you know, within that, how can you explain a little bit about how you can, you know, tap into that early on and know, you know, is this something becoming an issue for me? Yeah, for sure. You know, because we did say stress is useful, so you don't need to jump on every stress, but. Um, when we sort of wait till we notice those signs of stress that you're just mentioning, it can be actually really hard then to get on top of it, can't it? It can be really hard to kick in that parasympathetic nervous system or our breaks response, and it takes lots and lots of practice at that stage. What we want to do instead is actually get onto stress much earlier before we're noticing all these significant signs of stress. So if you think of stress like a little bit of a thermometer from a zero to ten scale, with zero being no stress and 10 being your highest possible stress. If we're hitting an 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10 in our stress response, it's really hard to bring our stress back down again. So what we want to do is when we're noticing our 5 out of 10 stress response or, you know, 4 to 6 out of 10 range, that's when we want to bring our baseline stress back down again. Likewise, if we're starting every day at 6 out of 10 stress, you can see that one little stressor in your day, it might be running late, might be blowing you up to an 8 or 9 out of 10, so a really acute stress response that's maybe not so needed. But if you can engage in some really regular stress management techniques that we'll speak about, your baseline stress might come down to, say, a 3 out of 10, and that way when you're running late for that meeting, your stress response is only going up to 5 out of 10, and you might not be noticing so many of those you know, acute stress symptoms. So what you can do for that is, I guess, for each of us, 
knowing what our 8 out of 10 stress symptoms are and what our 4 to 6 out of 10 and what are our 0 to 3 out of 10 uh, and being really clear on that. So even sort of drawing a thermometer and working out each of those ranges and catching stress and regulating and calming the body down again when you're starting to notice that 5 out of 10, that 6 out of 10. Don't wait till you're 9 out of 10 before you try and calm back down again. Often some of those earlier signs people will notice is things like irritability. Irritability, you know, snappiness, edginess, uh, a bit shorter, less patient with people is often an early warning sign that we ignore. But it can be a sign of low mood, it can be a sign of anxiety and also, you know, a sign of stress. So that irritability is usually sitting in people's sort of four to six category of one of their early warning signs. And it might be things like feeling a little bit tired, where when you're 10 out of 10 stressed, you're exhausted. Maybe you're four out of, you know, four to six is a bit tired, can't be bothered a little bit more. You know, maybe you've got a bit of digestive changes, but not the extreme. Uh, so just sort of noticing for yourself and working out what are your early warning signs of stress and can you get back on top of it and regulate your stress at that moment rather than waiting till you're your 10 out of 10. Yeah, that could be something, you know, little habit changes as well. You know, you start having three coffees instead of your one or you um, are reaching for a chocolate every night or um, a glass of wine every night to sort of switch yourself off, whereas before you would just have one on the weekend. So it can just be those little habit changes, can't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think the other thing to understand is what what causes stress because we think, you know, stress has to be – I don't know, a certain thing in your life. It has to be um, a big thing, but there can be so many little things that trigger it um, that we're not aware of that if we are aware of it, we can catch it a bit earlier. We notice that it's in our life and say, okay, well, this stress is in my life, so I have to balance it out with a bit more mindfulness and self-care in my life too. And And it can also become so ingrained in your life. A chronic stress can be so ingrained that, you know, you're tipping towards burnout for so long that you think, oh, I'm actually fine because I'm not at burnout yet. And you've said before, haven't you, Fee, you know, we're not preventing burnout where we want to flourish, is yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so catching it early is what I'm trying to say. You know, and it also doesn't discriminate. Stress doesn't discriminate on age, um, gender, economic status, marriage status. You know, you can be single, you can be happily married, you can have all the money in the world, you can be – you know, living in poverty, but stress can affect us all. And it can also, you know, one thing in your life can stress you out, but it might not stress someone else. So we can't be judgmental um, towards others about what um, is stressing them out. We can't say, well, what do you, you know, get over that? Um, because it can be a serious trigger and issue for them. Yeah, um, for sure. And just, you know, something that I'm always talking to my clients about things that are a bit more sinister or, in, you know, insidious in our life that can cause stress are things like chronic pain, regular sickness, um, under-eating and sending our body into starvation mode, excessive exercise, you know, especially the combination of those two, excessive exercise and under-eating can really, our body thinks there's something wrong and there's danger because we're, you know, we're running away from something and we're not eating. And then also, you know, getting that negative, constant negative media and news and social media and things, you know, endless emails and all of that can be just a real 
trickle throughout your life that's causing that stress response on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting to think of stress as the physical stress on your body, like, you know, that excessive cardio exercise, you know, because often we think of a stress as a stressor, like something that is stressing us, Mm. but not about something that's stressing our bodies. And so that's something that I think is really interesting to think about, not just what we're finding stressful in our thoughts, but what is our body finding stressful as Mm. well. And also keeping in mind that a lot of the stressful events in our life that can trigger these stress responses are actually really seemingly pleasant events. So when we look at that sort of a life events um, inventory or whatever it's called around sort of the events that are most stressful in our lives, and lots of them are really positive, things like birthdays, Christmas, marriage, you know, weddings, holidays. Uh, so some of the most stressful events in our life that can trigger this stress response are actually pleasant ones. Mm. And so it's useful for us to tap into that stress at any time, no matter what's going on in our lives, because it's not necessarily associated with these unpleasant events um, Mm. or our thoughts necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I I love how you mentioned what's your body, um, what's stressing out your body. And in the same way, what is your body telling you? You know, often I get an upset stomach before I even realize that I'm anxious or worried about something. So it's tapping into that response before you can, um, you know, mentally understand that you're having a stress response. Yeah, absolutely. Our body is a huge cue, isn't it, that we Mm. often ignore. Yeah. Definitely. So that was sort of about what is stress, how do we get to that, you know, stage of experiencing stress. But let's focus a little bit more about, what to do or how to manage it or why we should manage it. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people listening to this will often think about stress in terms of the workplace as well. That is a huge stressor for most people. And if you're listening to a self-care podcast, you're probably having a bit of workplace stress or work-life balance challenges. And sometimes it can be tempting to think that you don't need to manage your own stress. Actually, just your work needs to change or your workload needs to change and then your stress will be fine. When we look at the research around this, though, um, meta-analyses in research are kind of like your gold standard. So they take all of the case studies and then all of the randomized control trials and systematic reviews, and they analyze all of that together. So there was a meta-analysis on 46 experimental studies that looked at the effect of stress management techniques, including cognitive behavior therapy and relaxation training compared to organisational-based interventions, so interventions that dealt with those organisational challenges um, within the workplace. And they actually found that despite these workplaces having really significant organisational issues that were contributing to an individual employee's stress, the most effective stress management technique in terms of reduced burnout, reduced emotional exhaustion and improved concentration and things like that were the individual interventions, not the organisational interventions. So basically what that means is if we can individually try and manage our own stress, we can actually get a really good response from that even if there are issues within our workplace or even if that stressor is still continuing. It's absolutely worth us focusing on it as an individual. Mm, That's empowering. Yeah. Yeah. But we have the ability to change our reality isn't it yeah and some of the effects that we've seen across the research that can change when we do manage our stress is that we get less burnout less emotional exhaustion and less fatigue in general stress management improves our concentration it improves our mood 
It reduces that chronic pain that Georgia mentioned uh, that's present with the high stress response because it reduces muscle tension. Um, it can reduce hypertension and headaches and insomnia and massively reduces anxiety. Really interesting when we look at that research, actually, studies in total that looked over a 1,000 people. The biggest effect for relaxation techniques in reducing anxiety doesn't actually occur for those who are really clinically significantly anxious. It's the people who are doing pretty well. So the workers and the students in those studies had the biggest reduction in anxiety when they did regular relaxation training, for instance, one of the common stress management techniques. So yeah, that even if you're not someone who thinks of yourself as being highly anxious, you're probably still going to get some benefits from some regular relaxation or stress management. Uh, So we know that it's really useful. The research sort of tells us this, and yet still some of us struggle to prioritize it really. Well, most of us, I would say, struggle to prioritize it. So maybe we talk a little bit about, I guess, what you and I, Georgia, think are kind of the top things we can do to manage stress. The kind of There's so many things we can do and so many things out there, but there are, I guess, some core ones that if you want to go for the ones that are going to give you the most effect, these are maybe the ones to start with for people. So we'll start with some relaxation uh, strategies because they are one of the most effective and it's what a lot of the research is on. Importantly, with relaxation, people often think that they're supposed to feel less stressed or anxious or they're supposed to be calmer in their thoughts. But we know that stress starts in the body and stress ends in the body. Yeah, we spoke about that cycle within your hormones and within your brain and that really automatic response. And so regular relaxation practices are not necessarily going to mean that you notice a huge change in your thoughts or a huge change in your emotions, but you're trying to give your body a break from the stress response. So even if you don't notice a difference, maybe it's actually helping your body and engaging that parasympathetic nervous system, that relaxation response. So yeah, relaxation within the body is really useful. There are lots of different ways people might try that, you know, things like guided imagery, you know, some people try Um, other things but some of the biggest ones is some calming breathing techniques we know that when we're sort of stressed or anxious we tend to breathe in more than we breathe out like we hyperventilate so to calm the body down again we want to actually extend the exhalations we know that engages our parasympathetic nervous system so extending your breath out where possible so it's even longer than your breath in and ideally breathing from your diaphragm, that space between your belly button and your lower rib cage. When we're stressed, we breathe from our chest usually. And to calm the body down again, we want to be breathing from our belly. So breathing uh, relaxations, there's lots of breath practices that people can, can draw on, but you know, particularly focusing on the ones that are extending exhalations or at the very least making them equal with holding your breath as well and focusing on on breathing from the belly if possible. So as you're breathing in, you notice the belly expand, and as you're breathing out, you notice the belly soften. Georgie, you do a lot of work with those breath practices. Mm. Yes, I call that the Buddha. I, will, I like to think of it as a Buddha belly because I think as women too, we struggle to breathe like that as well mm. because we're taught, um, and males might feel like this too, but we're taught, or we learn culturally to suck our bellies in, you know, flat tummy. So 
I think that's particularly a good one to focus on as women because we are holding on and that makes us breathe more through with our chest, which then, yeah, sends the signal to our body that we're stressed. So, yeah, exactly, focusing on those belly breaths and letting, letting it all go. Yeah, and a lot of those fight-flight responses that Georgia spoke about, they can actually just get triggered simply from us over-breathing, from breathing mm-hmm. in too much and not breathing out enough. And so some people I know experience a strong fight-flight response just from yawning or from going up a flight of stairs because it just means they're breathing in a little bit more when they're already breathing in too much. And so extending that breath out just, yeah, tells your body that it's time to be calm, that it's safe, and then it can engage that rest and digest system. Another really useful one is a progressive muscle relaxation. So we, when we looked at, you know, those thousand plus people in the anxiety research, for instance, progressive muscle relaxation had the strongest effect in managing anxiety. So a really useful stress uh, management or relaxation technique. Progressive muscle relaxation isn't to be used or those muscles aren't to be tensed if you experience pain. So you always just want to check with your GP if you're someone who gets muscle pain um, or joint pain before you try it. But there's essentially what you do is you go through your body progressively as it sounds. So you might start, for instance, with your right hand up through your right arm and you squeeze each muscle and you hold it for around five seconds or so. And then you relax the muscle completely for about 10 seconds. This is a little bit similar to a body scan, which lots of people try, uh, where you focus on the muscle and you try to relax it. But the reason we squeeze first is because it teaches your brain the difference between tension and then you're able to relax. If we sort of say, you know, relax your shoulders, most of us go, yep, I have, but we're still holding so much tension. Whereas if we say shrug your shoulders up really tightly and then relax them, we're usually able to sense that difference between tension and therefore we can relax a lot better. So progressive muscle relaxation works through muscle group by muscle group, tensing and then relaxing. And there's lots of audio out there that you can access as well. I've got a progressive muscle relaxation through my website. Uh, But again, sort of check in with your GP and don't do any muscles that cause tension or cause pain if you you tense them. But that can be a really useful one. Mm, Yeah, and guided I think would be fantastic too. So um, I was just going to ask you that. So if you've got some on your website, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Other ones are mindfulness meditations. Again, these have lots of evidence uh, for them. I guess mindfulness in general, you know, we spoke about a little bit with Jess as well. It, it means sort of paying attention to that present moment without judgment um, and without striving, but just with that acceptance of, of what's going on for you right now and with curiosity. So you might find mindfulness meditations, for instance, mindfulness, uh, mindful awareness of the breath without trying to change the breath. Mindful awareness of sounds, of emotions, of thoughts, uh, those sorts of things. So mindful meditations can be another really useful relaxation technique. And I think that without judgment is a big one because especially if we dive into meditation with no previous experience, you can easily judge yourself because you're sitting there with a monkey mind and, you know, and that, but that's the first step and that could be happening for months before you can, can, you know, learn to control or sort of quiet in the mind but it's really about having that space isn't it and paying attention that is has the biggest benefit um and the consistency too yeah 
Absolutely. And that's where, again, I think kind of coming off the focus of trying to quieten the mind, that's not your goal. Your goal is actually to calm your body. And it's only when your body is calm that your mind will start to quieten. So we want that to be the first the first goal, really. But as you say, Georgia, it's a practice. You know, we don't kind of pick up a relaxation technique and nail it the first go. It takes a lot of practice even for our body to get the benefits and our mind. And there's a bit of sort of mixed evidence. It's hard to know how often we should be doing relaxation. It's pretty clear that all of us should be doing it and it has really significant benefits for all of us, even if we're not noticing the stress we're experiencing. It seems pretty clear that, you know, at least, you know, three to four times a week is necessary when some of the studies looked at less than three times a week on some measures such as, you know, pain and and sleep. There weren't significant improvements for those populations, those groups of people when they did it less than three times a week. So you'd want to be aiming for at least three to four times a week. People say ideally daily. I suggest kind of doing it five days a week uh, like you would your other routines and having a couple of off days. In terms of the duration to do a relaxation for, start small so it's really achievable, but you'd want to be building up to 10 to 15 minutes per day is what um, the research sort of tells us might be useful and might be uh, effective. And definitely using things like apps and guided meditation and coming to those when your mind's really busy and not thinking you're failing because you're having to use a guide or you're still using your, your smiling mind or your headspace app, you know, it just means you're committing to the practice, which is exactly what is needed. So there is no shame in using those. I've been meditating since my teenage years and I still come back to those when my mind is busy. So definitely use those resources. They're there for a reason. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, to fit that in also is, um, you know, sometimes we can be scrolling on our phone for 15 minutes in the morning, you know, and if um, you can swap that out for just a quick guided meditation on your phone, that's much better use of that time too. So For sure. The time is there. We're just not using Mm. it. Definitely. And sometimes anchoring it to a routine you already have. So most people find relaxation is easiest to do right before bed or just as they get into bed or when they've just woken up in the morning or lunchtime. So sort of anchoring it to something you're already doing so that it becomes a practice like doing your teeth that you don't even question. You just do because you know it's an essential part of your, your health and your well-being and seeing if you can kind of anchor relaxation in that way as well. Mm, that's great. And, yeah, likewise in exercise, which I wanted to chat about next too, is um, finding, yeah, finding a place for it in your routine. And I always recommend building that into your social life as well, you know, meeting people for a walk instead of a coffee or a drink, walking a dog or listening to a podcast that you really want to listen to but walking while you um, listen to it. Because social connection is also as equally important for your mental health um, and reducing stress and dealing with issues in your life and, you know, getting out in nature too. So if you can walk with someone out in nature, you're ticking off three big things that can be really beneficial. So, you know, exercise also, if we're doing things a little bit more high intensity, like running or swimming or anything like that, we're getting that dopamine rush, we're getting the release of endorphins that actually physiologically are analgesic, which means, you know, reducing pain. So there's pain relief, there's mood increasing, um, and also if you're moving your body, you're more likely to sleep better as well because you're 
you know, using your muscles and your tiring yourself out and using that energy that you're consuming throughout the day in food. So, you know, like Faye was saying, how much do we need to exercise a week for it to make a difference? And it's really, I guess, doing a little bit, you know, starting slowly and building up. But if we can aim for, you know, three plus hours a week, broken up, obviously, across the week, that would be ideal. And in whatever way that makes um, that you enjoy, because that's the best way to make it um, regular and consistent. Yeah, and there's been big studies around the blue zones. I don't know if um, anyone's heard of that, but they're the places in the world where people live the longest, um, the most centenarians per, you know, in the population. So, you know, social connection, um, movement, being in nature are big parts of that longevity, you know, puzzle, I guess. Then alongside exercise, a big one that as naturopaths, we talk about is nutrition because that's a massive part of our life. We're eating at least three times a day um, and a lot of nutrients are essential, which means that we can't make them in our body. We need to get them from the outside. So, you know, at a basic level, just getting in the right vitamins, um, vitamins, minerals, the flavonoids, all the good chemicals and phytochemicals in food Baseline, we need them to produce, you know, our neurotransmitters that make us feel good um, and also the chemicals that help us sleep and deal with um, stress and stressors in the body. So that's baseline, you know, getting in your whole grains, your protein, your fruit and veggies, all of those things. But on, on the kind of next level of it, it can actually, stress can cause changes in our behavior. So it's a bit of a cascade of events. We have the stress hormones, there's the chronic stress that then leads to insomnia and fatigue and everything, which then, you know, changes our eating patterns. So we potentially eating more, we're overeating because of, you know, it could be um, emotional eating and making us feel better, but it also increases the consumption of what we call hyper palatable foods. So that's things like takeaway foods that are high in fat, high in calories and sugar Um, but super low in nutrients. And then it can become, you know, a a physiological addiction and it can become compulsive. And then we also see changes in our body physiology that then affects how our body uses calories, where we store our fat. And, you know, it can actually change our appetite and um, satiation hormones So we can actually be more hungry and we can have cravings physiologically because of these changes in our body. So that's a bit of a vicious cycle, isn't it? Because it causes these cravings, but it makes it harder to beat the cravings. And then we do see studies showing chronic stress associated with obesity, um, which then has its own issues with mental health too. So as you can see, it's a bit of a cascade of events and causes these recurrent patterns and cycles between our mental health and our body habits, you know, our eating habits. Other things that can happen, you know, we we become depleted in nutrients. So we need to, at a baseline, get them in, but we also have an increased demand when we're stressed because we chew through our nutrients, especially things like magnesium, B vitamins, um, zinc and calcium. So they're really essential nutrients that are what we call cofactors in so many enzyme um, enzymes in our body need them to, you know, build um, energy molecules and 
build our neurotransmitter molecules. <laughs> so these nutrients are really, really important. So we actually use those up more when we're stressed, when we're sort of physiologically stressed. Yeah, yeah. So a good example is magnesium because, you know, if we're stressed, we have um, our muscles are more tense or our heart's working harder. And magnesium is really important to relax these muscles. So we have an increased demand, but we also have an increased excretion um, through the kidneys. So it's a bit of a lose-lose situation. So we need to be getting those back in. Big kind of deficiency signs of magnesium would be cramps and spasms um, in our legs, especially, or just anywhere in the body. I often have clients coming in who, you know, are are stressed and have issues going on and they get cramps and I give them magnesium because you can take it as a supplement and they come back you know even just within a week or two weeks later and say oh my god my cramps have just gone you know and that's a really good sign of well you were very depleted if you kind of got to that stage headaches are another one you know tension headaches can be relieved by getting that magnesium back in so supplements are an option but also obviously that whole food um, the Mediterranean diet has hundreds of studies around it, maybe thousands as well. So that's really getting in the fruits, the veggies, the nuts, um, those legumes, you know, beans and pulses, good fats like your olive oil and limiting red meat. So the studies actually show reduced risk of depression as well with the Mediterranean diet. So... As a naturopath as well, we also use herbs. So I thought I'd just touch on them. There are growing amounts of clinical trials. There are actually double-blind placebo trials um, around these herbs. So, you know, things that people would have heard of would be things like saffron and turmeric. So they're actually um, herbs that we use, spices that we use in cooking, and they've been used for years and years and years in places like India and through Ayurvedic medicine too. But they actually, when we isolate compounds from them and then give them in nice high doses, they can reduce perceived stress, anxiety, and improve mood. As well as things like Californian poppy, St. John's wort, and chamomile. But obviously, using those herbs is best to talk to a professional, so a herbalist or a naturopath, and monitor, you know, if you're on medications, that's a big one too. So they're beautiful to understand and to know that we have support, um, but yeah, definitely get someone to help you out with them. And one, you know, a couple of things in terms of making it easier to prioritize nutrition and get that nutrition in would be making it easier. Um, you know, we do have a lot on in life. So, you know, making time for meal prep, big meal prep to make the week easier, following recipes having a meal plan, having a weekly grocery shop, you know, dedicated time. Because um, I know for myself, if I forget to go grocery shopping, then the whole week kind of goes to crap. And, you know, you just have the quickest thing or whatever you've got in your pantry. So having these regular scheduled times is really helpful. And then even getting things like slow cookers or thermomixes or air fryers, if you can afford them, to make it not a stress. because cooking can be a stress for people too. So we want to get the good, healthy nutrition, but we don't want to add to our stress at all. And obviously the more that we eat quicker convenience foods like takeaway and quick, you know, muesli bars that are high in sugar, 
that sends us spiraling on highs, glucose highs, and then lows and can add to the stress and the fatigue and poor sleep. So yeah, we don't want to um, add to that, but we want to make it easy to get in the good food. So that's exercise and nutrition. So a lot about my my work and what I work with with clients. Um, what about you, Fee? Where where else do you come from in your psychological? Yeah, so I guess you know when we're thinking about stress and we're talking about it starting and ending in the body. You know, you'll notice that a lot of the strategies we're speaking about today are about the body. So relaxation, calming the body, as well as the mind potentially, exercise, nutrition. Another big body factor that we're not going to chat about today because we have a whole episode coming up on this is sleep, but managing sleep, you know, is really useful for managing stress as well. So if we come more to those psychological thinking, emotion sort of strategies, because of course, you know, often stress is high because there's something stressful going on in your life. You know, very often it's work for people who are listening to this, but it might be lots of other things happening in your life with family, with health, other things like that. If we think about, you know, work, for instance, as the stressor, uh, managing that stressor as best as possible can, of course, help your stress. So one of the useful things is to set boundaries with people and to say no. You know, often stress is really high because our demands are too high. We can't possibly keep up with what we're expecting of ourselves within our workplace, within our friends, within our family. All of those commitments, we're just running ourselves down you know, our batteries on empty. And so starting to set boundaries with people and sticking to those boundaries when you do set them, saying no, that means saying no to something social so that you can spend a little more time on yourself. Or maybe it means saying no to something with work so that you can spend more time with family. You know, I think in our busy society, in our busy world, we do need to start saying no and, and setting boundaries. And that's one way to really effectively manage stressors. Another way to manage it is to start to problem solve the things that you are worrying about. Often our mind goes over and over the same problem without us realizing it really automatically. It kind of is a problem solving machine, our brain, and it just goes over and over the same problem. So starting to write those problems down so that you can really clearly see, is this a problem that you can solve? Can you set some really clear steps on how you're going to solve it? such as coming up with all the possible solutions, looking at the pros and cons for each solution, and then trying the, the one that looks best first um, before you move on to other possible solutions. So actually spend some time problem solving those things that your mind is going over and over can really help reduce your stress in the same way that you might actually dedicate a bit of time in your day to problem solve those worries. And when those worries come up during the rest of the day, you just jot it down on a a note in your phone or a piece of paper if it's at bedtime, a note beside your bed so that you can come back to problem solving those stressors at a specific time in, in your day and just spending really sort of 20 minutes or so just problem solving them uh, so that your mind doesn't have to keep going over and over them every time because when your mind does that, it's sparking the stress response each time, right? So we just want to sort of really limit that as much as possible and come come to it when we're going to be effective in problem solving. And I guess, you know, I always kind of recommend only problem solving with a pen and paper because it stops your mind just going over and over the same thought again and again, which just adds to that stress response. Um, so being more intentional about that. Mm. 
Probably the other thing though to mention as well is that one of the big things that keeps stress going is stressing about stress. There's so much talk these days about stress not being helpful for us, which is why we started this podcast saying it is really helpful. We do need it. We probably just don't need it to be chronically high Um, because we know for sure and I see it clinically all of the time that when people are worried about stress being high and all of these physical effects it's going to have on blood pressure and, you know, cardiac functioning and all those things, well, then they become more stressed because they're stressed about their stress. So it is useful to remind yourself you can cope with, you know, high stress. You will be okay. You will manage it. You don't want it chronically this high, but you're going to manage it. You've got some techniques and strategies. So the things we sort of talk about today is how you can kind of implement these things so that they're a part of your routine, things like relaxation, exercise, good nutrition, sleep that we'll speak about next time, socializing, so that you don't then have to think about stress and managing it because that is just another stressor for you. Uh, So keeping in mind you can cope with stress. Um, It's not going to be this instant detrimental thing to your body and your life, but it's just something to kind of put in place practices so that you can manage it easier long term. Mm. And that kind of feeds into what um, I wanted to say about ways that we manage stress ourselves because we did want to mention just from a personal perspective of um, how stress has impacted us and how we've managed it in the past. And a big part of what I um, like to do in my life is build my tribe around me, people that I can laugh with and then have fun with and enjoy my time with, not just to talk about my issues, but have that tribe to enjoy life with, to switch off and not think about what's going on negative in my life because we need that time, like you say, to not um, be thinking about it all the time so that when we do think about issues that we need to problem solve, we're more productive with it rather than this constant kind of dialogue through our brain all day. So, yeah, having that tribe that you can, yeah, just enjoy life with is so important. And other ways, while I'm on the topic, other ways that I um, are big for me to manage my stress, I mean, baseline, we've kind of mentioned the breathing and everything and baseline for me is yoga. I just really discovered yoga and became a consistent practice for me um, in 2014. So when I started my naturopathy degree, which I think got me through my degree because university can be very stressful, you know, the balance of work, life, study, everything can be a lot. So that consistent practice of spending time by myself on my mat was really key for me. And on that note as well, time alone is, for me, absolutely, you know, vital. And I know that's hard to hear when, you know, some, you know, if we've got people listening that are parents and especially parents of young kids, time alone is very rare. But if you can carve it out at all, I think we all need to take some time alone to fill our cup back up so we can go back out in the world. Easier said than done sometimes. But, yeah, if you can... I know for me um, that's how I can kind of function the best in the world. But on a kind of just, you know, when I was thinking about this in terms of a positive reflection that I often do is recognising my own my own resilience and looking back on past adversities in my life and how I managed to overcome them. Because I think we often, you know, think back on negative things and maybe you know, think about them in a negative way. But if we can look back and say, well, hey, that happened and I actually got through it and came out the other side a better person or I learned something or I grew, 
um, if we can kind of, you know, celebrate that as part of life and as part of growing, I think that helps us next time something happens to us that we need to get through, helps us deal with it and cope and sort of remember what we did last time and really bring that into our current life. So focusing on what, yeah, what I can change and what I've done before I think is really helpful. Yeah, for sure. And there's quite a bit of um, sort of psychology research and even interventions, you know, that use that, particularly with older adults, for instance, helping them work out how they problem-solved other big life events and other big problems then helps them problem-solve the current events and it's actually been shown to sort of reduce depression as well. So, yeah, it makes complete sense that you notice that they're actually thinking, you know, how did you get through last time and can you use some of those same skills even though the life event now is, you know, very different or the stressor is very different? Definitely. Yeah. I love what you said about yoga as well because I was having a look at some of the research around that and Mm -hmm. it's really clear how useful it is, you know, particularly I think it was looking at um, healthcare workers uh, and looking at different bodily practices like yoga, progressive muscle relaxation that I mentioned, massage, those sorts of really body uh, relaxation practices and the effect that has on reducing occupational stress. And yoga was the most effective bodily practice in reducing that occupational stress. Mm-hmm. So, again, something that's completely outside of the workplace, occupational stress, we're usually looking to the workplace to fix our stress for us. But what if actually we could just go to yoga regularly and a sense of occupational stress reduces significantly. That mm. can have a huge effect on it. I love when these trials are coming out and these studies come out to show something that's so ancient and has been around for so long, these practices are so helpful. And I love that when you say, yeah, okay, cool, we've got the proof and um, we know it's great. So that helps. it helps us um, recommend it, doesn't it, too, because we know we're backed by that clinical evidence. Yeah, for sure. So what about you, Fee? How have you yeah, dealt with stress in the past? I know you've touched on the meditation and everything as well. How else have you noticed? Yeah, look, for me, I don't meditate regularly, but when I do, it's <laughs> evident how effective it is. So that's something that is my most, my, probably my second most useful. My first would be exercise, which I probably mention in every episode because it is so <laughs> evident for me, you know, even just if I do a before exercise out of 10 how stressed am I after exercise out of 10 how stressed am I it's really clear that exercise is really important Um, but I have to watch what you said before that you know that exercising too much is also a stress on my body and can kind of increase those cortisol levels long term so exercise and meditation and it's funny isn't it that really my core ones are all the ones that you spoke about Georgia (laughs) that nutrition is really core for me in, in managing my stress but particularly because not having sort of what I would call for me what's good nutrition for me um, is definitely a trigger for increased stress so if I am overeating or I'm eating lots of really sugary foods for me um, and I'm getting all those dips in energy all of that fatigue that adds to my stress because I then can't do things as much as I you know as quickly as I want to and I'm feeling agitated with all the sugar and things like that so um, managing that nutrition is really really important for me as well There's a couple of other things I do, I guess, when I think of that sort of stress performance curve, which, you know, if anyone's coming along to one of my workshops, I speak about a lot more, Um, but to kind of keep myself back in that optimal performance zone, I'm not at risk of having not enough stress. (laughs) I'm probably more at risk of having too much stress, as is sort of most people who would be listening to this. Um, But one of them is noticing that zone of delusion. So noticing, you know, when am I thinking that 
if I keep doing this task, my performance is going to be great. Catching myself and noticing, oh, maybe I'm entering that zone of delusion and performance is about to dip. And that gives me really good motivation to pull myself back, to slow down. You know, so for instance, I was doing a presentation on that and I was at that slide doing that Yerkes-Dodson law, um, you know, drawing up that curve. And I realized that I was about to not go and exercise, which was going to be my useful thing for the day, (laughs) because I was just doing really, really well, smashing out these slides, getting this presentation done. I'd worked for hours. This was on a weekend as well. And I realized that actually I was in my zone of delusion. I was thinking I needed to sacrifice exercise because I was working so productively. But actually what was going to happen if if I sacrificed exercise, my work performance was going to dip, you know, and, and that presentation wouldn't have been good. I would have burnt out and not even made it there. Uh, So it's kind of catching myself and noticing when I'm in that zone of delusion gives me a really good rationale to then slow down. And that slowing down might be even just really physically. Can I slow the way that I'm walking? You know, can I slow how I'm eating, how I'm talking, anything like that? Can I be really intentional in my movements? You know, anything that I'm doing it just if I'm going slower, it's telling the brain that there's not a danger or a threat there and that I'm safe, and that in itself kind of helps calm, you know, my stress response down again. So maybe if we're behind, walking behind a slow walker, we should just walk a bit slower. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And thank them for helping us. For helping us in the day, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully some of those things, I guess, give people a little bit more of an understanding of what stress is, you know, what's going on in our body and our brain with stress, and you know, some of those really basic things that you can kind of come to that you know, are essential though and are the most useful. That's why we keep coming coming back to them. And, and hopefully that then you find with some of these, it gives you more energy and it allows you to focus on the things that are most important to you. Mm, yeah. Let's finish up by, I guess, touching base on what you're listening to, reading, recommending mm. at the moment, Georgia. What is it for you at the moment? Yes. Well, I think mine's actually quite relevant, but that's just um, a coincidence. But it is Phosphorescence by Julia Baird. I think that's how you say her name. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been wanting to read this book for ages. People have probably heard of it. Um, but it is just a stunning um, perspective on life. And she talks about um, all kinds of different aspects of um, yeah, mindfulness or all, yeah, I can't think of a million off the top of my head, but mm. it's just a beautiful perspective on the world um, and is a good reminder. So that would be my recommendation this week. Awesome. That sounds so good. I'm just looking up mine because I can't remember what, <laughs> what it was called. <laughs> so mine at the moment is I noticed that I would open my phone and just kind of scroll a bit, you know, mindlessly, I guess, um, and it wasn't really – it's a life enhancing activity for me I didn't really want to be doing that so what I decided instead was to find an app that gives me motivational quotes because I find Mm. that inspiring and so that way when I touch my screen or look at my locked screen um, instead of being tempted to open up social media or something else I just see an inspirational quote and it's enough for me to just sort of see it and then 
I just read the quote and, and lock my screen again and go about Thank my day. Thank you for listening. So we I hope you enjoyed the episode. And for an app that's not clinically endorsed, but so I find it found an app called Motivation them. Daily Quotes. We appreciate so each and every review and that's been left and, sort of and we love hearing from you. So please leave us one if you feel like it. really useful and really If you want to stay in the loop about upcoming guests and episodes, make sure you hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram. And check out the show notes for links to any resources that we might have mentioned in today's episode. Just a reminder that everything we chat about in this podcast is to help you live with courage and joy and nothing should be considered medical advice. So always talk to your own healthcare professional. We'll catch you in a fortnight for our next episode and we can't wait to have you there. Georgia, thank you for joining us today on Find Your Inner Sage. We're grateful to it's record so this podcast on the lands of the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our deepest respects our to their so elders, past, present, and emerging. Thanks again for joining us, and I can't wait emerging. to have you on again soon.